are a W-2 capitalist. You are addressing the gap between your successful, fulfilling W-2 job and building wealth for your family through real estate investing. You are ready to earn, invest, repeat. Welcome to the W-2 Capitalist Podcast. Now, let's get to work. Here's your host, Jay Helms. Well, sir, I am uh, going to hand the uh, floor over to you. Before I do that, we got a guy on earlier who was singing your praises and people were asking about SDI, RA questions. And he said, you know, Juan's coming on later. He's going to be your guy to get real technical. So I anticipate, and it was Jim Ingersoll. He, he actually did, he didn't know you were going to be on here. Yeah. And then he said, well, yeah. y'all were on an event last uh, week together, I think. But, um, but anyway, yeah. we've got a pretty, pretty active group here uh, looking forward to your presentation. And if they don't have questions for you, I do. So <laughs> appreciate it. Yeah. And no worries. Yeah, please. Um, I'm pretty familiar with zoom. So if you guys have any questions throughout it, just throw it in the chat box and I'll try to, I want to be interactive as possible. So, um, I'll go ahead and share my screen here. I got the PowerPoint pulled up. The floor is yours, sir. Yell at me if you need me. Will do. All right. Can everyone see this? All right. Uh, Jay, we see it. All right. Yes, sir. Perfect. All right, guys. Well, thanks for having me again. As uh, Jay may have mentioned, I work for quest trust company. So my role there, is I'm one of the IRS specialists, right? So what I do is I answer all of the questions um, that clients send to us, uh, onboarding questions. People are just wanting to move their funds over to diversify their portfolio. Um, I've been trained extensively the past two, almost three years now um, on IRAs and the process of moving the 401ks you guys, you guys have over and what you can and cannot do, uh, reading IRS publication and all that kind of fun stuff. So um, that's kind of what I do. And I'll, I'll get into the PowerPoint here. A quick little disclaimer, though. I'm not um, a CPA. I'm not a CPA. I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not a tax attorney. Um, what I'm giving you guys here today is really purely education. I want to make sure that um, I give you guys the tools and resources to make the best decision for yourself. Um, a lot of people don't know about self-directed IRAs or don't know that they can do this um, or get advised not to. Um, and sometimes, I mean, if you guys are here, you're wanting to learn about real estate, this might be the a great opportunity for you. Um, I'll even throw out my PowerPoint. I'll go over um, a few things. So one, of course, is going to be how to use your IRA. Then I'm going to go over how you can use other people's IRAs. And then where to find information and education. I even threw in for this PowerPoint because it's pretty recent information on the SECURE Act that came out December, uh, December 20th, I believe, of 2019. Changed a few things. And then also the CARES Act. Right With all COVID-19, there's been some rules and that affected IRAs. So I'm going to go over that as well throughout my PowerPoint. And I've also two case studies. One that I did myself, I think it really exemplifies that anyone can really use these accounts. Um, I used it just this past year for the first time with $6,000. Um, so it is possible no matter what you have in the account, um, and you can get started whenever you'd like. So I'll go ahead here and, uh, and just kind of start basic stuff. So for those of you who are not familiar, you know, what is a self-directed IRA? We get that question a lot. Um, I even sometimes have individuals ask me in our application because we don't put the word self-directed anywhere um, on the legal documents. They say, hey, Juan, I'm looking to open up a self-directed. I don't see the option here. Um, and they will never see that. The reason being is because it's, it doesn't exist. The word is completely made up. Uh, it's a marketing term, right? Self-directed is put there in place to help you guys differentiate between an IRA that you may have 
at a Fidelity, a Charles Schwab, a regular brokerage firm that's investing into the stock market, right? To the publicly traded assets, right? Those are IRAs. The rules, they don't change at all, what you can put in and everything like that. But what changes is what becomes self-directed is really what you can do with it and the custodian that allows you to do so, right? So at Quest, we have what's called self-directed IRAs because we allow you to take those assets, take those investments, IRA money, and throw it into privately held assets, right? So that's what really creates it self-directed. So when you hear that term, it is made up, but it's just to help you guys kind of differentiate between the two um, types of accounts and custodians that you guys could be using, right? Some quick benefits, um, primarily diversification, right? Going into this industry, um, I didn't know much about this. And, you know, I just thought that the 401ks, the 403bs, the employer plans you guys hear about, and your IRAs, the Roth IRAs, the gurus talk about, always were invested into the stock market. Um, I never really followed the stock market too much. Um, I had friends that did. And, uh, and of course, you know, playing with the market that goes up and down, so does your account balance, right? Pretty simple there, um, as long as you can read the market. But true diversification is not necessarily investing into some high-risk mutual funds and some low-risk mutual funds. It's also throwing some money into privately held assets, right? Right now was a prime example. Those individuals who had all their eggs in the basket of the public traded market probably lost most, if not all, of their gains in the market inside of their IRA accounts or their just regular brokerage accounts. But those individuals who had money there and had money with Quest or had money with a self-directed custodian and self-directed IRAs, they still had interest payments coming in. Tenants were still paying, at least in the earlier part of COVID-19. Right? The money was still coming into their accounts because they were diversifying their portfolio and it was true, true diversification. So that's what I think diversification really is. The second thing is tax saving. So, of course, the whole purpose of these IRAs is you want to save on taxes. You want to defer taxes or you want to minimize how much you're going to have to pay when you're making these investments. Everything you do in an IRA account has some kind of tax advantage to it. Some IRAs have tax-deductible contributions, which we'll go over. Some IRAs have tax-free growth. Other IRAs give you both, which we'll also touch on. So, it really depends on what account you're using, but in some way, shape, or form, it's going to give you a tax Saving. It's going to give you a tax incentive to use the account and really use the strategies you guys are learning your expertise in and beef up your accounts, get a higher return. And the third one here is social investing. Um, when I first started at Quest, I thought this, this one was a little bit cliche, but it actually is pretty true. So when you invest in the stock market, you know, you, you put some money in with a big firm and you know you own some stock, but really you're not making a big impact on someone, right? And the way our, our VP puts it, you know, he he would rather put money into a local real estate worker's hand so he can go ahead and hire local contractors. The local contractors go to the local Home Depot, pay for the the, the materials you need, and then they're going to put a per, uh, someone in the in the home with a white picket fence in Labrador, right? They're going to put someone in that home all because he decides to loan out his money. And so social investing and kind of makes you feel good, right? You're actually giving back to your community while receiving a return. So that's kind of nice as well. And then, I mean, also you have tangible assets, right? Something that you can drive by, touch and feel. You can look at it. You know the progress. You know it's there. You can sleep at night, you know, feeling feeling good. And then invest in what you know best, right? So if you're a real estate investor, why not use those same strategies in your retirement vehicle? Why not take those funds that you have? If you're doing flips outside of an IRA, if you're doing private money lending outside of an IRA, if you're doing wholesale deals outside of an IRA, why not take those same strategies and apply it to your IRA account, 
right? You can do the same thing and you won't be paying taxes on it. And hopefully, ideally, you're beefing up your retirement account. So in the future, you can take out tax-free distributions and live lavishly, whatever you need. Right? That's kind of the goal for everyone, right? So we'll talk about all these things and how you can do that. So at Quest, you know, we have seven types of accounts, right? These accounts you'll see anywhere. As I mentioned, you'll see them at Charles Schwab. You'll see them at Fidelity. You'll see them at Merrill Lynch. You'll see them everywhere. So we have those same accounts and they kind of do the same thing uh, tax-wise. However, I'm going to kind of go into what you guys are going to really be used to or really see most or probably work with the most. And those are the traditional Roth IRAs, right? Now, everyone seeks out the Roth IRA, and we'll touch on that in just a second. But a traditional IRA is really, really where people want to focus on because 90% of people's money is in what we call traditional money, pre-tax money, right? Most individuals, most working Americans, what they'll do is they'll move over old employer plans, 401ks, 403ds. TSP, right? Any three-letter abbreviation, honestly, you can move those employer plans into a traditional IRA. Now, everyone's familiar with the employer plans. You put some money in, your employer matches. That money does not get taxed. It's tax-deferred gains. It's pre-tax money. So when you move it into a traditional IRA, which is this term right here, rollover, it rolls into a traditional, right? If someone has $100,000, they can move it into the traditional IRA without paying taxes, or any kind of penalty, right? So it allows you to conserve the pre-tax bucket of money and continue to reinvest it with the traditional IRA. A rollover is just the process of moving the 401k or employer plan into the traditional IRA. Now, the Roth IRA is very sought out. That's what I use currently. The Roth IRA is fantastic for individuals who are starting off without a retirement account because what you can do is you can put after-tax dollars in the account. Those after-tax dollars in the account are then invested and then grow tax-free. Right. So myself, for example, I put $6,000 in the account because that was the maximum. I put $6,000 in the account. That's what I invested. But the earnings I, I made on that, eventually when I retire, not right now because it's not my personal cash flow, eventually when I retire, it's gonna, I can take the money out completely tax-free without paying taxes. I suppose if I did that in a traditional, it may give me a tax deduction when I put the money in. But when I take it out in the future, it's not going to be tax-free. Right? So I'm kind of trying to make sure I can pay taxes on the, the acorn as opposed to the tree. Right, and kind of grow my Roth IRA so eventually I can take tax-free distributions. Now, a big thing here is how much money can you put in? So there's three ways money goes into these accounts. And one is contributions. That's money from your own back pocket into these accounts. Right? Every account has a contribution limit. For traditional and Roth IRAs, it's 6000 or 7000 if you're over the age of 50. It gives you the extra $1,000 catch-up contribution to put money in. Right now is a pretty opportune time to do that because we are still in the tax filing year of 2019, right? Since it's been extended, we have until July 15th, essentially, to make contributions to these accounts up until July 15th. So if you haven't done so, you can still put money in for 2019 for any of these accounts up to the cap, right? 6000 or 7000 depending on your age. The second way to put money in is rollovers. Rollovers is money that you get from those 401k plans. There is no cap on doing that. Right. If you have a million, if you have $10, if you have $100,000, doesn't matter. There is no cap. You can roll the entire amount into these accounts. The last way to do it is transfers. Transfers is moving the money in from a like account. So if you currently already own a traditional or Roth IRA with any other company or custodian or bank, you could transfer money back and forth. This is done constantly by Quest clients because they're, again, diversifying their portfolio. And you can move money back and forth as much as you'd like. Right. The IRS does not even report it to them. It's just you moving accounts from one bank to another, and they see it as all in one IRA. But for you, 
you're moving it over for specific reasons. So you could transfer funds back and forth from different custodians unlimited times and unlimited amount, right? As long as you have funds. One strategy people do a lot is they'll convert, right? You may have heard of Roth conversions. That is grabbing traditional funds, pre-tax money, and converting it into a Roth. Saying, I'm going to take this bucket of money and I want to put it in my Roth IRA. What that does is it triggers a taxable event. So if I did that today, for example, and say I had $10,000 I was converting, I'm going to add $10,000 to my adjusted growth income for 2020, which I'll take care of in 2021 before tax filing deadline. Right? So I didn't receive 10000 but I'm going to get a 1099 showing that I made $10,000 more. And I'll pay taxes on that based on my own income tax bracket. But now what I have is $10,000 in a Roth IRA. And if my deal is going to give me a return to double or three times my money, then the taxable liability is probably worth it. Because I'm going to make a lot more money in my Roth IRA, which eventually will be tax-free. So on the bottom here, you and you'll see this in most of my slides, I have online classes. And that are specific topics that I'll touch on. We take it to the next level, right? Another 45-hour class and you, that is just on Roth conversions and how you want to analyze it. But that's kind of the gist of it, right? You take some funds from a traditional move to a Roth. I'm seeing some questions here. Let's see if I can access those. Oops, sorry about that. It helps you, Juan. I can just read them off to you. Oh, sure. Yeah, I, I was. I don't know where it came up. I saw a little bit. Um, got orange. But yeah, if you want to read them off, go ahead. Yeah, if you and that way you can keep uh, moving along with your slides. Uh, Nick asks, I'm planning on moving my traditional IRA to a self-directed IRA. Assuming the best strategy is to roll into a self-directed Roth IRA, my question is, do I have to move the traditional IRA to a traditional Roth IRA before moving it to a self-directed Roth? Okay, I got you. So what you're planning to do is a conversion at one point or another. Honestly, where you do the conversion does not matter because ultimately it's going to be handled the same, right? You can do the conversion from traditional to Roth, and we'll talk regular ones at any, right now, right? And you're still going to be taxed. And then if you'd like, you can move the now Roth IRA to a self-directed Roth IRA with Quest. Or you can do the same thing by moving the traditional IRA that you currently have to a traditional IRA with Quest and then doing the conversion here. Honestly, it doesn't matter. I would say take a look at your custodian and see if they charge fees to do Roth conversions. Conveniently enough, we don't. So if they do, then there's your answer. You should move it over first and then do the Roth conversion. Right? But ultimately, it doesn't uh, quite matter. I saw some other questions there, Jay. Yes, sir. Um, this is from Annette. Hello, Annette. Uh, CARES Act allows you to take from your 401k without penalty or as a loan. How do we actually take advantage of this? Cool. Um, so I'm going to table that one just because I have a slide on the CARES Act coming up later. So I do want to touch on all those things a little later and uh, my answer your question there. Um, that's cool. Okay. And one more, uh, it says Juan started with a, okay. this is from Christopher uh, Linger. Juan started with a comment that there isn't an actual category of self-directed RA. If we have a Roth IRA already, is it by default as self-directed RA? Good question. So it's probably not. So depending, the custodian you have is probably like a fidelity Charles Schwab type of custodian investing in the stock market. So if you, if you went to them and told them, I want to invest into real estate, they're going to tell you, take the money out. Right, distribute those funds. Um, so really, that self-directed term, it's made up, but it kind of coincides with what custodian you're working with. Quest, we strictly do private assets. We only do real estate, right? We can hold those types of assets for you in your account, but other custodians can't. So think of it this way. Your Roth IRA right now has the same exact rules and guidelines 
as our Roth IRA, but Quest will allow you to invest into real estate. So current custodian might not. Is that right? Is that, is that kind of answer the question? So if, if that confuses you, please let me know. But ultimately, the self-directed is made up. You want to, the custodian chooses what assets you can purchase and invest into. Right. So I have a follow-up to this. This is me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you Quest just does real estate. Um, so if I wanted to invest in a business, uh, an LLC, was it's not a property that's going to generate cash flow. Can I do that with Quest or y'all are just specifically real estate? And thanks for bringing that up because um, I mentioned real estate a lot just because most of our clients are some way, shape, or form investing for real estate. However, it's a wide variety of things. And later I'll touch on what you cannot invest in, but basically anything you could kind of own and take paddle to and invest into personally or with an LLC, you could probably do with an IRA. So the answer to your question, yes, you can invest in companies. A lot of my clients actually invest into companies, LLCs, um, that are then going to take the money and then invest into possibly real estate or maybe even just a startup company. I had a client do a startup tech company, right? So yeah, anything private really. So yeah, gotcha. absolutely. Uh, one more just popped in and then... Oh, Unless you yeah. just want to move on, you want to come back to it. All right, I'll answer it. Go ahead. Okay. Cats uh, ask, "How can I transfer front funds from my self-directed Roth to an LLC's bank account? Do I literally cash out and deposit the check to the LLC, or does the company transfer it to for me upon request?" So the company would transfer it for you upon request. Um, Quest, for example, would have to see some kind of documentation, some kind of agreement between the company and the IRA. We, we don't just send money out blindly at, at, at your will. We do have to see some kind of agreement, right? Something tangible to hold on to, signed by possibly the manager of the, of the company. Now, there are some rules that you wouldn't be able to throw your money, your IRA money into your own company. And I'll touch on that uh, in a few years too. So you got to get a little ahead, but I like it. The wheels are thinking. So um, yeah, ultimately, yes, you can definitely do that. But there are some steps to do it. I'll go over that in a few. So just to move on a little bit and get to kind of the meat of the presentation, um, I want to get past these accounts here. I'm not going to spend too much time on employer plans. Um, we have a few here, SEP, Simple, Individual 401k and Roth 401k. The last two there, honestly, one account, but it has two separate parts to it. Um, so SEP IRA is very, very popular. A lot of times people use it if you're a sole proprietor, uh, real estate agent, um, just really working for yourself, don't really have any employees and want to provide yourself with a simple employer plan to kind of give you the overhead view of how it works is basically your employer, which might even be yourself, can make a contribution based on how much you pay yourself or how kind of income you make on a yearly basis. It's a percentage. So if you're, for example, let's say making $100,000, W-2 for your own company, you can put up to 25% in the SEP IRA. And it works like a 401k traditional IRA. It's all pre-tax money. And then if you're you know, working and you're paying yourself 1099, and you pay, you pay yourself $100,000, then you could put 20%. The percentage is a little different, um, but ultimately allows you to put the money in from the employer side for the employee, which is, you might be both people, um, to kind of just give yourself a retirement account. And you could put a lot of money in there if you're paying yourself something, right? The maximum you can put in though is 57,000. So you could put a lot of money in a year in a setup IRA. Very, very popular, um, usually for those sole proprietor individuals that just want some kind of pre-tax bucket of money account but that allows you to put more than just a 6,000 or 7,000 cap that you get with a traditional. A simple IRA, uh, not as simple as it sounds, honestly, it's a kind of a matching plan, right? So basically the employee can put up to 13,500 in the account and then the employers can match anywhere from two to 3% of that. Um, so it's a matching plan. 
lot of people use this for, in, for businesses who have 100 or less employees. You cannot have more than 100. Um, I see a lot of practices like doctor practices use simple IRAs for their employees uh, for the full-time ones. The individual 401k and Roth 401k, very, very, very sought-out account. Very, very powerful account. Otherwise, also known as the qualify or a QRP or a solo 401k, right? All same name. Basically, what this account does is for individuals who are self-employed again, but have no employees and no common law employees in any company that they may own or control. You can create a 401k plan that's pretty powerful, right? Your employee can put some money in, which maybe is which is you, up to about eighteen thousand dollars, and then your employer can put some money in as well. So you can put a lot of money into this account, um, and then you also have checkbook control. You have exemptions to specific taxations. You can take loans out of this account to yourself, um, which we touch on also in the CARES Act. It, it extended the loan. It used to be fifty thousand. Now it's a hundred thousand. Um, so a lot of a lot of advantages on the four hundred one k that I'm not going to get into because I can talk for an hour and a half on that plan. Um, if you are interested, please let us know. What we like to do for those plans is really get on a consultation and a call because we want to make sure that, A, you qualify for the plan, B, you understand the plan because there's a lot of work on the individual. Um, and we kind of just go from A to Z on it, right? And it usually takes around an hour, hour call for those, uh, for those plans. But please let us know if you are interested or have been thinking about it. All right. Now, these plans I like a lot. The, we call them a specialty plan. So we have the Coverdell Education Savings Account, or the ESA, and the Health Savings Account, the HSA. So the Coverdell Education Savings Account, what that is, is an account that you can make for your children. For, in, for children under the age of 18, you can put in $2,000 a year and invest it. Just as if you're investing in your Roth IRAs and traditional IRAs, you could invest in ESA. The whole idea is to be putting money in, ideally when the kid's pretty young, $2,000 a year, and then investing it alongside your account, growing that account allowing you to take tax-free distributions out of the accounts for any qualified education savings, uh, education expenses. Examples can be tuition, if it's a private school, uh, uniform, books, even laptops, right? Because they have to use them for, for their homework. Um, you can even argue that you need to pay your Wi-Fi out of an ESA because they need Wi-Fi to do homework these days, right? So that allows you to take some money out tax-free for education expenses um, the whole idea is kind of a lot of people, what they do is they start it when their kid's pretty young and they'll be putting $2,000 in every year. And hopefully that becomes a college fund because if they're investing it for about 18 years, compound interest can do some magic there. And then basically you can take tax-free distributions for pay, to pay for tuition or if they get a scholarship, pay for their books, et cetera. Right. So just things like that. So it's very, very advantageous. Um, but you have to be pretty savvy because it's, you know, you have to make $2,000 work for you. And so you keep growing it and growing the account. The health savings account is one of my favorite accounts. We call it the best of both worlds. When an individual puts money into a health savings account, you take you can get a tax deduction, right? And when an individual takes money out of a health savings account, it can be tax-free, as long as it's paying for health expenses. I personally use my HSA constantly. Um, I have two HSAs. I have one HSA with Bank of America because they give me a debit card. Right? I get to swipe my debit card. Um, when I go to CVS and buy some Advil, or if I go to a doctor, I went to a chiropractor, use my HSA then. I even use my HSA to buy the glasses I'm wearing right now, right? So I can buy things that are for my health, right? I need the prescription glasses, so I need them. Um, and I paid all tax-free. I'm not paying taxes on it because I've invested my HSA and I've loaned it and I've made tax-free profits. My other HSA is the Quest. Because I don't, I'm pretty young and I don't use, I don't 
have a lot of health expenses, I invest most of my HSA dollars, right? And in hopes to grow it and eventually have a lot of money to take out tax-free for other health expenses when I get older and will need it more. So what I do is I keep it pretty much a minimum in the HSA with my debit card and the rest I invest it, just like my other accounts, right? And I grow that account um, to kind of beef it up a little bit. Cool thing also is if I don't need it right now, let's say I have a health expense of $10,000. I don't have that in my HSA right now, but in 10 years, let's say I grew the account to $20,000. I can take a distribution just to reimburse me for that past expense, even if it happened 10 years ago, right? So you can reimburse yourself for health expenses as well, which I think is really, really neat um, and cool with the HSA. A lot of people don't know about that, right? The contribution limit for an HSA though, it really depends on how your health plan works. If you are covering just yourself and no dependent, then the maximum you can put in a year is $3,550, $3,550. And then if you're covering any dependent, then you could put in $7,100. Right? If you're over the age of 55, you get an extra $1,000 catch-up. Now, remember, there's only caps on contributions, money I put into my back pocket into the account, not in earnings. So don't get those too confused. So I have a very, very powerful account. If you qualify if your health plan allows for an HSA, which is key, then I highly encourage you guys to get one because if you're not going to use it, you can at least put more money in to invest with, right? It gives you another investing tool and investing vehicle um, that eventually you probably will use for a health expense. So definitely, definitely consider an HSA if you don't have one already and qualify to to have one. So all the plans that we have, the seven that I just went over, all of them can be self-directed. All of them can be used together, right? If I have a Roth or I do have a Roth and I have an HSA, I use them together, right? In my investments, if I have an investment that has $10,000, that needs $10,000, but I only have six and one and four in the other, I use both, right? And this is essentially how we see on all the contracts that we see come through our desk, right? If you're if a promissory note, if it's a subscription agreement, whenever an IRA makes an investment or is located on the deed of a house or deed of a trust, whatever it may be, this is the legal name, right? The individual vesting would be Quest Trust Company, FBO, which stands for the benefit of, it would say your legal name, IRA and the account number given. Whenever you're using multiple accounts, they're the same, but we add a little parentheses there to show the undivided interest, right? So if it's a 50-50 split, it shows 50%, 50%. If it's uneven, well, then the percentage has to be correct, right? Um, I have a case study later on that shows nine different IRAs on one promissory note. Uh, one IRA had 50% of the note and the lowest IRA, which was an ESA, I think the child of three, um, had a one point. 8% interest, I think, of the note as well. So it is possible that the way borrowers or the other side sees it is not a bunch of different checks because the accounts are all held at Quest. Quest sends one check, one wire out, and then when the funds get in or payments received, we divvy it up based on percentage, right? So we handle that work. You don't have to expect or tell your borrowers or your whoever it is paying you money to your IRA account to cut nine different checks, for example, right? So that's pretty easy to do. You can do it with family um, as long as you're partnering together. There are also some restrictions in IRAs. There's people, transaction, and investment restrictions. People restrictions are individuals who you cannot send money to, buy, sell, trade with, right? Um, and we'll go over the list here in just a second. Transaction restrictions are certain entities that you can't also go into business with. And investment restrictions are literally investments that the IRS says you cannot do. People restrictions are disqualified persons are always going to be primarily yourself, right? You're disqualified to yourself. So you cannot loan yourself money out of your IRA account, right? You cannot buy a house with your IRA and then live in it, right? That is a benefit to you 
And the only way the IRS wants you to benefit of your IRA is the distribution because they get paid, right? Other people that are disqualified are yourself, your spouse, your kids, your kid's spouse, and your parents. So it goes up and down the line, right? And the reason why is because that's how wealth is passed, right? You're not typically going to pass wealth down to a brother or a friend. It's usually passed down to spouse, your kids, and parents. However, if you are going to pass wealth down to a brother or a sister or someone that's going to be your beneficiary, then that person is automatically disqualified. The reason being is that person has a fiduciary responsibility to your IRA. They eventually, if something happens to you tomorrow, they will inherit that account. Right? So they want to just kind of have, want you to have an arm's length distance with people. Again, don't be don't confuse this with what I talked about before: partnering accounts. Right? Partnering is staying on the same side of the fence and doing a transaction with someone else is different. So this is a little little diagram that will show you. If you and the IRA on the separate side of the fences, it's a no go. If you guys are on the same side, then you can. This is technically the chart that I just described pretty easily. Yourself, your spouse, kids, parents, their spouses, right? But also it touches on the companies those individuals own, control, manage, or are highly compensated by. You can take a picture of this if you'd like or just give us a call. No need to memorize this at all. Just know that those people really close to you, those descendants of yours, if you're going to do a deal with them, definitely give us a call because we want to make sure it's not prohibited. Um, if they're going to receive a benefit of your IRA in some way, shape, or form, it probably is prohibited, right? Even if it's your company. If you're doing a rehab on a property with your IRA and you're going to hire your son's contracting business, that's a benefit, right? So just be careful with those. So as I said, you can't buy, sell, trade, loan, or extend a service. Extension of services is where the IRS really can get you because an extension of service is very, very vague. That's exactly what they say in the publication. They don't describe it. An extension of service up for interpretation. Um, the way I see it, and the easiest way to explain it, I think, is if you have a property that you are fixing with an IRA, and you go and you do the work yourself to lower the cost and benefit the IRA, that's an extension of service. You extended your brawn and you went past your brain, right? So that's kind of just be careful there. Um, nothing to stop you from just giving us a call and run through the situation with us because we can maybe find a solution or maybe tell you if you're dancing on the gray line a little bit too much. Investment restrictions, as I mentioned, are just what the IRS says you cannot invest into. First is life insurance contracts, right? They don't want you betting on people's lives. People will drop a lot faster. And then second is collectible, right? Collectibles can be antique cars, art, alcoholic beverage collections. They actually say that in publication. Um, reason being is because no one can really find the value of those things, right? The IRS wants to be able to tax you at any point in time if necessary, and they need to know how much your assets are worth on a yearly basis. Collectibles, honestly, you just can't value it, right? A piece of art that may be worth a million dollars to someone might be worth $5 to me, right? So that's why they just don't let you do it. So just don't do those two things. Again, as I mentioned, always give us a call if you have questions, right? Myself and my team, our Irish specialists, we're trained in this, and um, there's a about 20 of us on staff ready to answer your questions, right? Um, we're always available. We don't have automated systems. So we always get a person to talk to or schedule a consultation with us. Um, so definitely take advantage of that opportunity. Before I get into the SECURE Act and the, and the CARES Act and then my case studies, I want to just take a little few times, maybe some two questions or three. I, I saw a few more come up, Jay. Yes, sir. Um, Tanya Burke asked, can you use blank for health insurance premium. I think it was back when you were talking about your HSAs. Uh, can you use an HSA yeah. for your health insurance premium? So if you can use your HSA for health insurance premiums, um, I, I do believe you can use it for, for example, COBRA. Um, for the most part, you cannot. 
Uh, I would double check with your insurance provider if they'll take it. Um, in my experience, not typically. Um, but if you're, you know, if you're using Cobra, for example, I know that for sure Cobra is allowed. So two two questions around the ESA. One is from Annette. One's from uh, Katz. Uh, Annette asked, "Can you pay for private grade school tuition with ESA?" And then Katz kind of follow up question is, "How is ESA similar or different than a five twenty one plan?" Cool. Uh, so yes, you can definitely pay for the the private school right tuition. Um, it's for use of the education expenses from when the child is basically first enrolled into whatever school, kindergarten if need be, up until uh, postgraduate, right? Your master's degree and things like that too. So you can definitely use it for those expenses. Um, the second question was the difference between ESA and a 529 plan. Um, an ESA account is actually considered an IRA, right? The ESA has some rules, of course, the limit of a $2,000 contribution. I'm pretty sure the 529 plan is a lot larger. Um, it is a state plan as well, 529 plan. An ESA is not. Um, and ESA has rules where you have to stop contributing once the child is 18. And once the child turns 30, they have to decide whether to distribute the entire account or you can even pass it down to maybe their children. Uh, the 529 plan, again, is a state plan. I know 529 money cannot be moved over to an ESA. However, if you have an ESA, it can be moved into a 529. Um, so those are just a few differences there. Uh, the ESA is just an IRA account, honestly. And then the, the 529 is strictly for, you know, I believe for college and specific state. That's awesome. I'm, I'm, I need to look into the ESA for my, for my children's. Uh, what is the yeah. difference? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Yan asked, what is the difference between health insurance and HSA? So you do need health insurance to have an HSA. You can't just have the HSA, right? Um, so you have to make sure that your health insurance plan is HSA compatible. The HSA is essentially just an, an addition to the plan, usually for high deductible health plans and to kind of offset the fact that you may have to pay more out of pocket usually because of your plan. Yeah. So you'd still have to have the health plan. It's just, an, I think it as like an add-on. To yep. your plan. Uh, Reinhardt and uh, Reinhardt, Thank you for your email. I've been mispronouncing your name the last two days. I apologize for that. Reinhardt asks, I work full-time for Boeing. I have heard that you can and cannot roll over a Boeing 401k to a self-directed RA. What is your opinion and is there a tax on this? Okay. So if you're currently employed by them, that's probably why you're getting a little bit of pushback. Um, typically, you have to have what's called separation of service. Now, I highly doubt there's going to be somewhere in there that says you can't move it to a specific self-directed IRA because the self-directed, again, is, is a made-up term. Once you leave Boeing, you know, that money doesn't just disappear. You're not stuck there. You cannot move it, right? You cannot move it to an IRA account. Typically, if you don't do anything with it, they'll move it for you. And a lot of clients, they'll have their form kids move to, like Fidelity, for example, and they didn't even know. Um, so typically, it gets moved to an IRA anyway. And then it's up to you to really tell them that you'd like to direct those funds to a custodian-like quest, and that's what's making it self-directed. But to them, it's all the same process. Now, if you move that 401k account to a traditional IRA, you're not going to incur any taxes. You're not going to incur any penalty because you're keeping those funds pre-tax and moving it to another pre-tax account. But if you were to, let's say, move it to a Roth IRA, for example, they're probably going to withhold 20% for taxes and then move those funds over. But you won't be penalized, right? Because you're still keeping it in a qualified retirement plan. Um, so I, I think right now you're getting the pushback just because you're probably still employed by them. Um, but yeah, you should be able to move it at, once you have the separation. I always get confused about what's taxed and what's penalized, right? 
to me, it's all a penalty. <laughs> uh, anyway. Right. Um, yeah, no, it all sucks. <laughs> um, um, but, so but there the is a difference, I mean, right? Yeah. 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 The taxation happens with, because it's adding to your income and because you're making that conversion, you're making that conscious decision to reap a different benefit, pay taxes now instead of later. But the penalty happens when you don't follow the rules and you're not, you're either moving the money and distributing to yourself to buy a nice car and you're not of age yet to do so, then they, penalty, they penalize you 10%, right? So the penalty is really when, just when you're doing things that you haven't qualified to do so yet. Um, typically, once you reach the age of 59 and a half or above, then that penalty is lifted in most accounts. Gotcha. Uh, Keith Minton asked, what's the MAGI limits on a CESA? If I take too much money, can I still open an account for my kid and have grandparents put in money? Good question. Um, so interestingly enough, I actually had to deal with it a few days ago. That's why it's still fresh in my mind. So thank you for asking that now. Um, yeah, the AGI limit, I believe, is around 190, right? It may be a little above that, but 190,000, meaning you cannot contribute to the ESA. However, I think having an AGI limit on an ESA is kind of a dumb thing because they allow anyone to become a depositor on the ESA account. So you already hit it on the nail there where you can just have your parents or the grandparents of the child contribute to the ESA. If their AGI is lower than the limit, right? So even though you may be lower, there's ways to get the money in as long as you know someone who is lower than the AGI limit. I don't know why they have that rule. If they're going to let anybody do it. It's kind of <laughs> dumb if you ask me, but this is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is somewhat government regulated right so uh, <laughs> yeah 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 uh man we got questions flowing in i'm afraid we're going to get away from your presentation you want to keep going and then we'll circle back to them yeah let's, let's circle back a little bit um i'm almost there on the cares act stuff so i'm pretty sure it's going to come up with a lot of questions and then the case study so okay. um so i'll fly by this part a little bit uh what investments are you knowledgeable about you, know, you can invest into that these are just a few of the things and the investment choices that we can see, um, that we see star and what you can invest into. Again, revolving around real estate, um, but doesn't necessarily have to be, right? As uh, you see private entities deals with LLCs, limited partnerships, JVs, trusts, and what those companies and trusts and partnerships may be doing, we don't know. Uh, promissory note, uh, what I do is lending the money out to individuals for the promise to pay, honestly, right? I secure my, uh, my investments with a collateral, with real estate property usually. That's something you can do as well. And you know, you can be very creative with it, honestly, right? Remember, the investment restrictions are just two things. So you can be very, very creative. And we have individuals who are very creative. Uh, one of the craziest things I've seen are one individual is investing into source stock models. Not sure how that works. And another one was investing into horse firm. Um, so very apparently a very lucrative business if you do it correctly. Um, so, you know, you can invest in anything you know. Right? It, really, it really is true. Did you say horse sperm? Yeah, no, I did. I did. Okay. Yeah, no, definitely. Right. One of the weirdest ones we have ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> it ain't. That's what he does. Um, apparently, you know, I don't know anything about it, but if, if you get a pretty nice horse and, you know, you make some good babies out of that one, you can sell off. So. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> so, All right. I don't know. Yeah. So <laughs> a lot of questions yeah, there, but hey, that's, that's fine. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Let's get there. Not, not an expert on that, but um, <laughs> so moving on to the Secure Act. The Secure Act was the, the law or the act passed December 20th, uh, 2019, just before the new year. It changes a few things that I think we should touch on uh, to make some people aware of. Um, so age limits for making contributions have been removed, right? So typically, usually you had to, once you reach, let's say, 70 um, and a half in a traditional IRA, you can no longer contribute, right? Because they required you to take money out of the IRA account. So they didn't want you to put money in if you had to take money out. Now there's no age limit. As long as you have earned income, Qualified income such as W-2, 1099, Schedule C or F, 
can allow you to contribute to an IRA account no matter your age, right? Um, so that's one new thing that came out and was pretty cool. The second thing is the RMD age, the required minimum distribution age, now increased to 72, which is a good thing. I see it's going to keep going up and up uh, as people start living longer, hopefully. Um, right. So 72 is now the age where they require you to take money out on a yearly basis. Uh, the reason why people do or they require RMDs is because, you know, they're saying that, hey, there's some money in there that we can tax. Right. Some of it we want a piece of the pie. Um, they don't require this on Roth IRAs because, again, they're not going to get a piece of the pie. So in traditional IRAs, they do. And they're saying, hey, you're getting kind of old. We're going to give you this chart every single year. You're required to take a minimum amount uh, out of your account to force them to pay us taxes, right? Force the uh, client to pay the IRS taxes. So that's what an RMB is. And they just raised the age now to 72. A little cheat sheet, if that applies to you, is if you were born before July 1st, 1949, your RMD starts when you're 70 and a half. Um, if you're born after that, then when you're turning 72, that's when you'll start your RMDs. So definitely get get with us on how you want to calculate it and how you want to take care of it. Um, it is an RMD amount based on all the accounts you may have. So let's say you have an account with Quest, an account with Merrill Lynch, an account with Fidelity. You have to take into account all of those accounts, right? You can take it out of one, but you want to do the math for all of them. You take basically the value of all of those accounts at the end of the year and divide it by a denominator that the IRS actually gives you on a chart. So a little bit of other things um, that changes the inherited IRA. So some individuals may come to know about what's called a stretch IRA or what they do is when someone passes away, they name the beneficiary a very, very young, maybe a grandchild, for example, because that individual, the one who inherited the IRA is going to now be taking money out on a yearly basis based on their age. So if you're, if the person who inherited the IRA is 50, you know, they're going to deplete the account a lot quicker. But if the person who inherits the IRA is 10 years old, you know, it's going to last a lot longer. So they get to stretch out the IRA's lifetime to continue to invest in, and you can take out the money without penalty, right? There's that penalty thing again. Um, and if you do that in a Roth, you can take it tax-free. So super, super powerful. But with this new act, the IRS kind of started catching on. They're like, we want our money a little quicker. So what happens is if you're a non-spouse that inherits an IRA, there's new rules that you have. Right? You have to now deplete the account within 10 years. doesn't matter how you do it. You can take five bucks out each year and then the 10th year, take it all out, however you want to do it. But within the 10th year, you have to deplete the entire account. So it kind of got rid of that whole stretch IRA. Unless you're one of these, a disabled individual, um, chronically ill, the beneficiary was not more than 10 years age of the decedent. You're a minor, and so you won't have to do the 10-year rule up until you reach age of majority. There's a few things there, but for the most part, people would have to deplete that account um, over the next 10 years. Birth and adoption, this is pretty cool. So now allows you to take penalty-free distributions for qualified birth and adoption expenses. So if you're looking to adopt a child or about to give birth, you can take up to $5,000 out of your account without the 10% penalty to pay for that, right, to help you out with that. So that's cool. They didn't have that before. <clears throat> well, you will be taxed yeah. on it, right? You will be taxed, uh, yes, sir. Yeah, yes, government. Sir. Hey, I got They're always going to get you. I got two questions that popped in. Uh, Rick Ma, thank you for uh, uh, donating to Operation Underground Railroad, by the way, Rick. Uh, Rick asked, what's the process of setting up a self-directed RA from a SEP IRA? Yeah, so we have a SEP IRA too. So I mean, if you want to just set up a SEP IRA with us, you definitely can. I would say you don't necessarily need to unless you're going to continue contributing to the SEP IRA with Quest. Right, because that's really where the benefit of a SEP is. If you don't plan on contributing, you can open a traditional IRA too. But either way, the process is really simple. We have an application. 
Um, it's a four page document. Um, it's getting your personal information and we set it up for you. It's super, super simple. That and an ID. Um, and it goes by the same rules that you're already familiar with. Uh, but now you can just use it to invest into real estate. And if you're looking to make contributions, you definitely can. Or if you want to just transfer funds over from your current step, you definitely can too. And you don't have to transfer the entire amount. You can transfer what you need for whatever investment you have upcoming. All right. So super easy process to do. Yeah. Um, I got one, one, one more from Eric. Uh, man, Eric, I'm going to butcher your last name. I'm going to go with Eric J. Uh, Eric, I saw you donated to Operation Underground Railroad yesterday. Appreciate that, buddy. Uh, once This question is, once you open up an HSA account and you have money in it, can you continue to invest and contribute the investment properties back into the account, even if you no longer have that qualifying health, health insurance premium? Great question. Yes. Absolutely. So whenever you don't have the qualifying health plan, the only thing that happens is you can't continue to contribute. Once you, if you do get the qualified health insurance back, then you can start up again, right? Um, as long as you have a qualifying health insurance plan in place by December 1st of whatever year, then you can make a full year's contribution, right? So if you set up an HSA this year before December 1st, then you can still contribute for the full year. If you set it up after and unfortunately, you cannot. But yeah, you're a great question. I mean, if you, if you have the HSA and funds in there, you continue to invest them, please do. Um, you just don't want to be contributing anymore until you get that plan back. So the CARES Act, so this is um, kind of what we've all been waiting for. Uh, hardship distributions, 401k loans have been increased and required minimum distributions have been suspended. Um, one thing I want to say before I go into the details of that is the IRS honestly sucks at giving us rules and they're very, very vague. Um, they've told us kind of, I think, half of what we need to know because there's still some questions out there. Um, so with hardship distributions, what it does is it basically permits you to take $100,000 out without being subject to the 10% penalty, right, which is typically applied to those individuals under the age of 59 and a half. Um, however, you still pay taxes on it, right? And you can pay the taxes once or you can pay it prorately in the next three years. Additionally, they allow you to put the money back into the plan on the third year if you can. If you can put it back into a qualified plan, that's great because then you can continue to utilize it inside of the account and reap its benefits. Now, a question I get a lot on that is, well, can I put it in a Roth since I pay taxes already? Right, essentially making a huge Roth conversion and stretching it out within three years. And to be quite honest, I don't know because they haven't given us the answer on that yet. Because when the money goes back in three years, they have not told us what's going to happen. They have not told us, are they gonna give us a refund? Are they gonna let us put it in a Roth IRA? Uh, what's going to happen? So we're CPAs and myself or, and attorneys are all scrambling to find those answers. Um, but ultimately what I think is going to happen is they're A, going to let you put in a Roth or B, they're going to give you some kind of refund for um, them to put it back into the account, right? Um, hopefully they don't bamboozle everybody, take the money out. I think this is the last place you should look for um, in a hardship to take the money out unless you absolutely need it because it is well-protected funds. Is pre-tax funds or maybe potential tax-free funds um, that you shouldn't necessarily take out unless you really have to. And a, lot, a lot of clients of mine are taking them out, so it's definitely happening. Um, I understand. So if you need to, you definitely can. Right? Um, you ask for a distribution, you will not be penalized, but you will still be receiving a 1099 um, in the, in January. Right. Qualified individuals to reap those benefits are participants who are diagnosed with COVID-19. Participants whose spouses or dependents are diagnosed with COVID-19 or participants who have suffered financially from the pandemic. Um, I think almost everyone is suffering financially from the pandemic in one way, shape, or form. So ultimately, give us a call. You know, if you don't know that you qualify, give us a call, see what the circumstances are. Um, what we do really is we just require that you 
you know, distribution forms, you select that the reason for the distribution is COVID-19 and we'll report it as so. Right? We definitely want to be there to help out if maybe we're not going to hold on to your funds and hassle you for it. The last thing is the 401k loans. So 401k loans typically where, where you can maximum take out $50,000 or 50% of the account, the lesser of the two. And they just increased it to a maximum of $100,000. Um, right. So now if you have a 401k plan, you can just take a larger loan out, pay it back within five or so years with interest. Right. So you're paying it back to your 401k. Um, maybe better than a distribution if you have that opportunity because you're not paying taxes. You're technically just paying a loan back to yourself. Um, that'll benefit you anyways in the future. So that might be an option if you have that plan um, or if you have a 401k with your employer who allows for loans to participate. Definitely ask your HR department, ask your 401k custodian um, if they allow it. And if so, that's something you can, you can take advantage of and definitely should if you, you need. The last thing is the RMDs we touched on. This year, they're just not requiring anybody to take out RMDs. If you take out RMDs and you already did, you can roll the funds back in, right? We'll just take the funds right back to the account, put it as a rollover, and you won't be taxed anymore. Um, so if you did do that, let us know. And if you were planning on taking RMDs and you don't want to, then don't, right? So it's definitely up to you there. They just kind of waived it there for, for 2020. So before I get my case study, any questions? I have two case studies. Yeah, how got, am I doing on time, by the way? You've got about uh, 13 minutes, but we got one question came in from okay, uh, cool. Cindy Byler. Uh, Cindy, thank you for donating to OUR again. Uh, been very active in the chat, so thank you for that. It's keeping this interactive. She asked, "How do you, how do fee structures usually work for self-directed IRAs? Is it uniform across the board, or is it specific to the custodian?" It is specific to the custodian. Usually, pretty competitive. However, um, all the custodians charge based on transactions. We don't make money off of your investments. We don't make money off the money sitting there. We make money when you guys make deals, right? So. To go quick and a quick overview of what Quest will charge, for example, we charge you when you open accounts, right? hundred bucks. We charge you when you buy assets, $125. We charge you when you send money out, 30 bucks for a wire, for example. And then we charge you to basically administrate the account on a yearly basis. And this could be anywhere from $25 a quarter to $295 a year, maybe more depending on the account. It really depends on the activeness, value, and kind of what the account's doing. Now we have a few different options. Um, so great question, but definitely is, a pretty competitive all around um, and they're transaction based. All right. This first case study. So uh, I'll skip the second one. They're very, they're very similar. This one is the one I did personally. Um, and it's a promissory note. Right. So I don't have much time to deal with tenants and toilets. Uh, and so what I do is I kind of network, right. Um, I network to find borrowers, find real estate investors who are looking for money um, and know that they can look for money out of vehicles like IRAs, private money. And myself, I can be involved in those things. And I, what I do is I vet my borrower. I make sure I trust the person. We are usually somewhat kind of friends at the point where I start lending the money because um, I see them constantly and I feel secure that they have my money and they're going to pay me back. So what this deal was is a $157,000 promissory note funded by nine IRAs. As I mentioned in the beginning of this PowerPoint, I used $6,000 of my own money. Um, so how I did this is basically we went around me and my friends, uh, some coworkers who are kind of do private money lending on the side as well, um, all have IRA accounts, Roth IRAs, HSAs, ESAs for the kids, um, and they have money sitting there. So we just literally walk around the office and say, hey, you got money, you got money, you got money. Um, and if they have money sitting there, they're usually willing to take a look at the deal and see what's going on. 
Um, so it happened to be that most of the people that were on this note knew the borrowers too. He's, like, he, he's networked enough to be friendly with his private lenders. Um, so that was pretty cool. Right. Uh, I redacted some information here, so it kind of looks kind of messy. But what we see here is the actual promissory note, a snippet of it. And when it listed out the lender, a paragraph of lenders, because there's nine different people. And in each line, it says question, trust company, FBO, a name, IRA, and an account number. And it gives the interest, right? So I'm here somewhere, and I put in $6,000, and I had a 3.83%, right? So I had 3.83% of this deal. But we were able to basically cut a check or a wire out of 157 to the borrower, and then he made payments right back based on the principal. Um, our terms were negotiated by Quest, or sorry, no, by us, and then facilitated by Quest. So we did the terms, we negotiated everything. We wanted 12% interest. We did a year maturity. Now, we knew he was going to pay back a little before. Um, he ended up paying back in about seven months, seven to eight months. Um, so that was nice. Pretty easy process. We had a first lien position. So we had the deed of trust also show, you know, showed all the lenders once again, show the borrower's information. Um, I felt comfortable because the property itself uh, was worth just a little bit more than what we lent out. Um, and the individual wanted it because he had a good deal to purchase it and he was going to do the rehab um, and figure out Airbnb it, sell it, kind of keeping tenants in there, whatever it was. He had some extra strategies there. Uh, but we felt pretty secure. And so the profit amongst everyone's IRA is about $18,000 or just under $19,000. Of course, I didn't get that in my IRA account because I only had 3.83% of that. All right, quick question. Yeah, does Quest provide uh, the documentation needed to sign the promissory note or is that something you have to get from a legal entity? Good question. Yeah, so you, we use a lender's attorney. So you definitely have to get that um, yourself. I've seen very, very thick promissory notes, for example, and I've seen two pagers. Um, it's really up to you and the borrower how you want to go about it. If you want to use an attorney or not, um, we highly encourage using a lender attorney because they'll look out for your best interest. Um, but ultimately, it's all on you how you want to go ahead and do it. We just review the documentation. The reason why we review it is we want to make sure that you're not loaning the money out to yourself or any prohibited party um, and just staying compliant with the IRS. Essentially, Quest signs off on behalf of the IRA accounts and we send the money out um, each individual account holder had to submit paperwork, internal paperwork to allow us to do so. But a pretty seamless process, to be honest. Very easy promissory notes, um, very passive. Probably about 50% of our clients are doing that because most people don't have the time. So this is kind of an easy way to get their money out there and get them working for them and give them a higher return than the market's giving them. Key points is we negotiated the terms, not Quest. All lenders had to submit internal Quest paperwork. Quest sent one wire to the borrower. The borrower made one payment to Quest. We closed that title company. Lender's attorney had to draft a promissory note. We chose the maturity date. It was one year in this case. The interest payment was paid back at the end to Quest. And then we split it between the accounts. Notice the types of IRAs we used were all tax-free profit type of accounts. They were Roth IRAs, HSAs, and ESAs. So ultimately, everyone reaped the tax-free benefit there. Um, every individual there in the future, people who are using the ESAs can use that profit to pay for education expenses. Those who use their HSA can pay for health expenses. And those who use their Roth when they retire will be part of the tax-free distribution they can take to retire off of. So definitely something to consider, you know, definitely using uh, family accounts. If you have, you know, you, your spouse, kids, I mean, you all can be on one promissory note, even if the kids only have 1% interest on it. 
still worth it. Uh, fees wise, I know because that's always a big question is we split the fees. So we have a transaction fee, as I mentioned, of 125. Um, if you're using nine different IRAs, that gets split by nine because it's all one promissory note. It's all one wire going out. So we're not going to charge you 125 times everything. Um, and same thing for the uh, the wire going out. We charge 30 bucks for wires. That also gets split. So that's usually always split apart because it's one contract, one deal. Um, but each account does have their own yearly administrational fees. So depending on the value and what they're on, they're still paying fees, but usually, hopefully, the return is greater. So I know we're short on time, um, so I'm kind of going to skip over this one here a little bit. With someone buying land um, for a pretty short period of time uh, for very cheap. I know it's two people using their accounts. They went 50-50 in a Roth, um, and in 45 days, they ended up selling it for $15,000 because the golf course bought it um, pretty quickly after they realized that someone else had bought it off of this old, grumpy old man, basically, to cut the story short. Um, so they made pretty fast tax-free profit. I think that was a home run deal. Um, they didn't make a million bucks, but they made, they doubled their money in 45 days. So that was pretty cool. Um, they were planning to just sit on it for a while and see what happens to the land. So I like to throw that one in there just because it's fun. Um, OPI, as I mentioned, other people's IRAs. This is using other people, you know, as, as leverage. You know, if you have friends that are separating from their job, they may have private money that they can lend you for your real estate transaction. It's a win-win scenario because they can put their money to work and earn above, above average interest. So definitely always keep that in mind when you're looking at financing from banks and hard money lenders. Always keep in mind private money lenders. Super negotiable. It's all relationship-based. It's all based on your network. Um, so I think the speaker before this was talking a bit on how you should definitely leverage your network and get out there and get out of your comfort zone because you won't be surprised how much money is out there. All right. So definitely use that to your advantage. Who should you contact? Um, whenever you guys have questions, there's always an IRS specialist like myself. And what we do is we set you up, make sure we give you a game plan or you give us your game plan and tell you how you can achieve it. We'll set you up with an account. We'll get the money moved over how we need to. And then we'll kind of, depending on the investment you're doing, we'll split you up between a real estate department, private entity department, or a notes department. Right? They fund transactions all day. All they do, they review your documentation and they send the funds out. And then once you're invested, you're working with our accounting department and they'll take the money in or they'll make payments out of your IRA if you have a tangible asset that has expenses. So these are the departments you usually work with. Uh, but again, an IRA specialist is your kind of quarterback on your team because they will allow you to, they will answer your questions and they'll basically guide you where you need to be answer, and, and be there for you. So definitely always reach out. Um, so we have this promotion where the month, it's right now zero account opening fees, but I'm going to do something better. So we're not going to cost you anything to open an account, but if you just shoot me an email, you know, tell me you were on this webinar. Um, this is my email address right here, juan.deshawn at questtrust.com. Uh, my number for the main line is right there, my extension of 3635. But if you just send me an email, you know, for the first 25 people, I'll, I'll, add, I'll throw in a $100 credit to where it goes towards your fees. So essentially, pretty, pretty cheap to move the money in and maybe even do your first deal because um, I'm giving you guys money. I want you guys to succeed. Um, so I'll do that for you guys. Uh, but yeah, just reach out to myself through email and I'm pretty quick to respond. And that's all I have for jail. We can do questions. Sorry, I was typing up your email. I want to be one of the first 25 <laughs> to get in there. Um, yeah, let I, me know. Yeah. <laughs> I No, I have a IRA with a different company. Mm -hmm. I definitely want to move it over to you guys. Uh, it just, you know, I've enjoyed talking to you and getting to know you for the last couple of weeks and just kind of setting this up. Um, I don't get that level of service where with who I'm at, right? So 
Uh, I do have one more question and, and we'll round off, round off with this. Uh, this is from Annette. Annette, thank you again for, for donating to OUR. Uh, her question is, can you do a promissory note to yourself uh, or your LLC uh, or an LLC you are a 50% partner of? Uh, she's assuming no, but want to confirm. So I guess she's asking, can you take an IRA that is yours, loan 50% of that to yourself or to a entity that you are 50% part of? Uh, is that legal? Are you able to do that? Great question, Annette. So unfortunately not, right? So when we look at the prohibited transactions and the disqualified person, you're number one on that list, right? So you would not be able to lend money out from an IRA to yourself because you, you guys can probably negotiate some pretty thick terms there, right? You guys can bridge them nice. Um, so they're not going to allow you to do so. And same thing with even the companies that you have large influence in and definitely owning 50% or more is definitely a large influence. This also brings up that sometimes individuals may be, well, I only own 10%. So sometimes you have to look at also your position in that company. If you only own 10%, but maybe you're in every single meeting and making decisions, and ultimately, if you're loaning your IRA money to that company, you're loaning it almost to yourself, right? So you, that's where that extension of service comes into play too. So you kind of want to just have that arm's length distance and, and kind of stay away from that. Uh, but you can look at anyone else's IRA to invest into your, into your business or to you personally, right? If you, if you have partners or friends or even brothers and sisters, remember on that list, I did not mention brothers and sisters, right? It's just yourself, spouse, kid, parents. But great question. Uh, unfortunately, in that case, you would not be able to. Awesome. Juan, thank you very much. I can't get by without saying this, but I know you've probably never heard this before. Uh, you know you look like the Karate Kid. Yes. <laughs> <I've>, uh, <laughs> so, the Quest actually does a Halloween party um, yeah. every single year. And my, my VP told me when I first started working for him, he's like, dude, Gotta go as Karate Kid. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've gotten that before. <laughs> I figured. Yeah, I figured. Oh, that's incredible, man! Can't kick uh, that high though. Yeah. A no. <laughs> uh, lot of truth bombs you've dropped on us, man. Thank you for for your time and, and sharing this. Has uh, been has been awesome. So, just want to encourage everybody to reach out to Juan. If you didn't get his email and contact um, while while he had it up there on the screen, you can go to w2capsummit.com and he's got we got some links to his stuff and he's also a member of our Facebook group. So yeah, he just put it in the chat uh, there as well. So um, you got to get in line behind me though. I, I know I sent you an email, so hopefully I'm <laughs> one of the first 25. Um, cool. But thank you for being here. Uh, I almost called you Daniel. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> 